You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On June 17th, the Washington Post and the Knight Foundation joined forces for the third annual Free to State Summit on the First Amendment to discuss subjective interpretations of free speech protections when it comes to artistic expression. The recent indictment of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange for violating the Espionage Act has reignited the debate over the question, what is the line between First Amendment protected journalism and the theft and publication of classified information? In this segment, a group of seasoned journalists and legal experts discuss how investigative journalists navigate this legal and professional minefield while balancing related ethical considerations. Let's listen. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Ellison. I'm a reporter here at The Washington Post. Um, I'm joined by my colleagues, Deputy Investigations Editor Dave Fallis on the far left, or your far right, um, then a member of The Washington Post's legal team, Kalea Clark. She's a, I guess you're the Deputy General Counsel. Um, and I'm also pleased to welcome Sandy Unger back to The Post. He's a director of the Free Speech Project at Georgetown University, a former reporter here, um, and the author of the book, The Papers and the Papers, an account of the legal and political battle over the Pentagon Papers, which is of particular significance to our conversation this afternoon. Um, before we begin, I want to remind everyone in the audience that you can tweet questions using the hashtag postlive, and I can pose them to the um, panel later in the discussion if they're good. I'm joking. <laughs> um, okay. Um, Same so, <laughs> um, so the news of Julian, Julian Assange's indictments um, and the Justice Department's decision to charge him with the Espionage Act has deeply concerned journalists and government watchdogs. Um, many believe this kind of legal precedent going after publishers of classified government information lays the groundwork for future infringement of the press, um, particularly in issues of national security. I want to open up to all of you, but I guess, Kalea, I want to start with you. What's the difference between prosecuting Julian Assange and prosecuting the Washington Post? Well, I think that is the concern that is raised by the indictment. I mean, the Espionage Act has been around for decades, and it generally has not been used by the government to prosecute what we think of traditionally as journalism. Um, and working here at the Post, I think, you know, seeing how responsibly we conduct our journalism and sort of the ethical boundaries that we draw, um, I think that that may be one reason for it. Um, but those sort of guardrails, if you will, sort of the ethics and responsible journalism are not built into the Espionage Act. And so at this point, I think it remains to be seen whether there is a meaningful distinction in terms of what the government has alleged in the Assange indictment and what our investigative journalists do every day. Um, and certainly, you know, I think this is, as I understand it, the first time that sort of the pure publication of this information is the subject of an indictment. Dave, um, you obviously have a lot of experience in terms of the way the Washington Post publishes this kind of information. What's your take on the difference? Well, I think I think there's a couple of things to think about when you when you when you consider the Assange indictment. First of all, the there's 18 and there's 18 distinct counts, and the first one, or the first one that he was originally indicted on, was was basically a hacking charge. It was a conspiracy to commit computer fraud, and that was in April. Then they came back I and... I just interrupt to just explain to people who don't know. It was specifically about helping, trying to help Manning. Chelsea Manning break into 
or right. break the password. Yeah, so he essentially, was saying, this is how you do it. Coaching to crack a password. Right. That charge doesn't bother me at all for journalists because um, we just don't, by pattern practice, by decision, we just don't break the law, and we can't break the law. Uh, we don't break into computer systems. We don't crack, try to crack codes. Uh, we we are just you know we're citizens and we we're not above the law. We don't have subpoena power. We don't have policing. Uh, we don't have the right to arrest and 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 uh, seek search warrants. The charge the the other 17 counts are more concerning from a sort of a slippery slope perspective. Um, the the idea that by obtaining classified information and then publishing classified information, it's a threat to national security and it's somehow treasonous essentially. And I think that as I sit here today, knowing the kinds of safeguards that we have built into our editorial and our legal process at The Post, I'm not super concerned about it, but I am concerned about it from a broad sort of framing perspective. Because as journalists, I mean, we're just citizens. And the same, the same fundamental protections that Assange has through the First Amendment are the very same things that protect us as journalists. I mean, we don't, we're not credentialed, we're not licensed, we don't we don't have bar exams. We don't have med boards that can pull our license if we misbehave. And, and, and largely, the courts and, um, and our country has, has left open the idea of who is a journalist and who isn't a journalist. And I think that's very important for democracy because the idea our country is built upon this idea that anybody can publish and that you have a right to publish. I mean, you have to, it's a great responsibility. So that's what concerns me is more of the slippery slope argument. And I think a lot of that will, will, will remain to be seen whether his case is successful and whether there in the future there are other attempts to sort of go after journalists um, based upon espionage. Clay, I want to come back to you really quickly and then Sandy, I want you to give us your whole Pentagon papers. Um, <laughs> um, the you mentioned the Espionage Act and there's a portion of the Espionage Act that talks about the intent to cause harm to, national, to, to the national interest. Um, <clears throat> Has that, has that ever been tested, and is that an area where people can try to draw a line between different kinds of actors who are publishing information? So I think that the intent piece of it is gonna be kind of a complicated um, piece of this case, and one that hasn't really been tested too much. I mean, it's hard to get to the intent. Um, of someone, you know, obtaining this information and publishing this information. I do think that that is a possible line that could be drawn between sort of what we do here at the Washington Post and what Assange is alleged to have done. Um, I also think it's a very tricky area to get at one's intent. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are different portions of the statute that apply to different types of information that was obtained, and for some of them, there's a heightened intent requirement. Um, so I think that is one possible area where um, sort of a distinction between what we traditionally think of as journalism and what Assange is alleged to have done could be fleshed out, but I think that remains to be seen. May I just add something about the Espionage Act? Uh, of course. It was passed 102 years ago this week, and it is really a World War I era law. Mm. The first test of it came two years later in a famous case called Schenck v. U.S., uh, a German immigrant who was printing pamphlets against the draft in World War I. Mm. And the court did implicitly endorse, in a unanimous opinion by Oliver Wendell Holmes, did implicitly endorse the Espionage Act. And it's never seriously been challenged since. 
that's that's a hundred years ago that uh, Schenck was Schenck's conviction was upheld. It's hmm. an amazing thing because it's very vaguely worded statute, right. as you say, and there's uh, it's you would think a journalist would realize it's very difficult to prove intent, but a lot of juries and courts have felt otherwise. But it hasn't been tested that much, right? I mean, isn't well, that the, one of the reasons why it um, stood for so long? Well, one troubling statistic is that uh, of, of the, uh, let me think of the, the numbers, of the 13 people ever prosecuted under the Espionage Act, eight of them were charged under President Obama. So more than right. all other right. presidents combined. So in recent years, to the extent it's been tested, it's worked. Right. People have been convicted. Um, so let's step back and turn to the, the free press case paradigm, which is the Pentagon Papers, and you're the authority <laughs> on that. Um, can you help us understand how that case set the stage for where we are today? Sure. Well, the Pentagon Papers, as most people sort of remember, it's almost 50 years now. 19 well, that's a, I was going to say, it's the New York Times, began, I have a little note here, that it began publishing the <laughs> Pentagon Papers 48 years ago this month, right. in June 1971. Again, June, another June event, June 13, 1971. And it was a study that Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara had commissioned. It was a history. It was intended to reflect the lessons of American involvement mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia for future study. Uh, I'm not completely sure that Robert McNamara ever really read the story, the, the, the history, the read history. the Pentagon. <laughs> but he was stuck with them. So he had started something that he couldn't escape. There were very few copies, very few people had access, and there was a guy called Daniel Ellsberg who had helped write the Pentagon Papers and had one of the copies assigned to him while he was a scholar at the Rand Corporation mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And uh, anybody who has seen the movie The Post. Right, I was going to say, this is like the Cliff Notes version, see The Post, right. some of these things. Uh, saw a, a characterization of Ellsberg copying, having his children, his teenage children, cut off the classification oh, right. marks and then copying the papers at his girlfriend's public relations office. It's a, it's a sort of, the details are not all that dramatic. Mm -hmm. And it took him, well, it took actually quite a while for him to persuade anybody to read it even. People, he would take it to people. We'd come in with this huge thing, 47 volumes in a cardboard box and try to get Senator Fulbright, Senator McGovern, various people who were at least somewhat against the war in Vietnam to, to read it, to make, to ask that it be made public, never succeeded. So to make a long story, and it is a long story short, he um, basically gave a copy of the papers. By now he'd Xeroxed various parts of it, it was a little chaotic, to Neil Sheehan of the New York Times. Right. And the Times, there's actually a, a deeper backstory, but I'll skip that for now. But the Times spent three months examining these documents. They, they uh, had hotel suites with security, and they were looking them over and trying to decide if there was anything they could figure would harm national security. Mm -hmm. And they decided it didn't. June 13th, they began publishing the documents, and within a couple days, Henry Kissinger had persuaded Richard Nixon and his attorney general, John Mitchell, that they should 
go after, try to prevent right. publication, right. not prosecute, not bring criminal charges. Thank you. Uh, before but, it happens, but to have a prior restraint right. from a continuation of the of the publication. That was a pretty serious thing, and ultimately they failed. But the uh, remarkable thing was that. Erwin Griswold, who was Solicitor General of the United States at the time and argued not only at the Supreme Court, but also the Post case at the U.S. Court of Appeals here, asked the Pentagon, tell me the 10 or 12 things that are really dangerous about mm -hmm. the Pentagon Papers, that are really compromising. They couldn't convince him that there were any. And this distinguished legal scholar, former law school dean, is up at the Supreme Court trying to persuade the right. justices that this was going to do grave harm to the national security when he himself did not believe it. Um, you said that you had come up with similarities and differences between oh. Daniel Ellsberg and Julian Assange. Yes, well, there's... I think that's such an interesting yeah, thing to pose. There's, there's been a lot of attention to that uh, these days. I, well, first of all, at the beginning, Ellsberg was uh, not so favorably viewed by, uh, by the public and and certainly not by his colleagues and his and former colleagues in, in government. But um, the, the key thing is that Daniel Ellsberg never claimed to be a journalist, never, never purported to be. He was, he was a, I don't know that the term existed at the time, but he was a whistleblower. Right. And he now regards himself, now almost 90, regards himself as a, an, an early whistleblower. Julian Assange... Um, purports to be a journalist. I think that, as uh, my colleagues here have said, uh, um, we don't really know what Julian Assange is. No, and, and by the way, I think most journalists are very uncomfortable with Julian Assange being called a journalist. They don't, they don't like him. He's, he's sort of been unpopular. He's been obnoxious. He's, he's, uh, well, it's an interesting question about um, whether you like someone or not. I mean, right. I've heard people talk, which is sort of irrelevant for of it is. questions of principle and the law, but it does make it seem easy. It, it makes it easier for there not to be a lot of popular right. support for someone. And it, and it makes it hard to accept him as a poster child for these really profound issues With the first that are up for grabs. Although we've talked a little bit outside about how you know, we don't always get the best examples to try to decide these cases on no, that's the right. People versus Larry Flint. It was not the highest-minded right. content that was being protected, but that's the whole, whole thing about what the First right. Amendment. But, but we're stuck with Assange. I mean, whether we like him or not, he's he's not a publisher. He's not a source, really. Well, he is a publisher, right? Well, I guess he was a publisher well, he in the sense that he, information. he published the information on WikiLeaks, but it didn't really achieve much attention until people picked it up. Until well, that's an early, that's a very interesting thing. He initially, going back into the history, when he, he act, initially um, released the Apache helicopter video. Um, right, right. Which was the height of his popularity, in fact. Right. I mean, he did, he had been releasing things, sure. but then decided to go to um, go big. To go but big. the source was Chelsea Manning. That was the person Correct. he persuaded. Right to provide this extraordinary number of documents. And it was, um, uh, a, well, a very different thing from the Pentagon Papers in the sense that Daniel Ellsberg always assumed, some of us didn't believe it at first. I covered the case for the Post, but then also his criminal prosecution in Los Angeles. And he always believed he was going to go to court and have to defend himself. Hmm. He always, he planned for it. He had lawyers lined up in advance. 
Um, Assange doesn't doesn't want to have to defend what he did, and I think that even though I do think we're we're stuck with Assange as representing these profound principles, I think uh, some would say, if he really believes in these things, he should be willing and prepared to defend himself. I mean, in some ways, there's more of a similarity between. Um Edward Snowden and, oh, absolutely. and um, Ellsberg. But I want to move on to just the question of that, that following the Pentagon Papers, there was a sort of detente between the press and the government. It was like an unspoken bargain of mutual restraint, which ended during the Obama administration. And you pointed out um, that the Obama administration prosecuted more leaks than every other prior administration combined, a fact that I feel like we're all really aware of. Um, so what I'm going to ask, I'm, I'm going to open it up to everyone. I, I'll, I'll want to go to Kalea first, though. What accounts for that shift in the dynamic? Do you have any thoughts about it? Starting with the Obama administration? Yeah, why did that, why was that the administration where things changed? Or what, I mean, and it might not have anything to do with the administration in particular, but what changed? I mean, I, I really don't know the answer to that. Sure. But um, I mean, one thing is I think that the nature of journalism has mm -hmm. changed so much. There are so many more leaks. Um, there is so much more content being put out every day. Um, and that may just increase the pressure to try to clamp down on those leaks. Um, the Obama administration did seem to draw a line at prosecuting the sources and, um, as I understand it, looked into Assange and sort of did not, you know, take the additional steps that the Trump administration has um, and looked at, for conduct in terms of whether Assange was aiding and abetting his source in sort of leaking this information. Um, but it certainly has changed the climate, both legally and sort of in the newsroom, um, in terms of you know how you treat your sources, how you protect them. Mm -hmm. it, it's, um, I think part of the explanation is that Eric Holder, President Obama's Attorney General, was a real hardliner on leaks of government information, and I think he persuaded the president that this had to be. Had to be stopped. And so. Yeah, that may be part of it. I just want to say that I want to echo what she said because I've been at the Post since 1999, so I've seen, I've seen the the shift over time from the analog to the digital. And you know, I started in journalism when there were still two. There was an afternoon newspaper, and there were two publishing cycles a day, and you could sit on stuff, and there was no competition other than the morning newspaper. Or the, if you were on the morning, it was the afternoon, and that all changed in you know 99 to about. 2005, there was just a seizure. I mean, it was like suddenly everybody could publish instantaneously everything. And people were able to put databases up online. They were able to leak stuff anonymously. I mean, it was like, it was like all bets were off mm -hmm. and all the traditional rules changed. And I mean, we saw, you know, we saw the, the decline of the analog sort of journalism industry, but it, it fundamentally was at the core of our mission. And, and so I think the, the Obama administration, I don't know about political agendas, but in terms of partly maybe that surge was a reaction to that, I think, which is we have to put the lid on this pot. Everybody can leak instantaneously. We can't just go to the post and, and, and lobby them. We have to lobby 10 million people. So let's start, let's start making test cases and let's start making examples of people. And I think that's what you're seeing, some of it. I mean, I don't know. They felt like I they maybe lost a little control of I the, think so, I think so. It's, 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 it's suddenly everybody has the power to publish everything at once. We don't, we don't control the ink anymore. It's not, you can't just, you can't count on 
hey, let's invite all the publishers and beat on them a little bit about they need to really mind the, the uh, First Amendment here and, and watch their P's and Q's. It's because people like Assange and, and other people can publish from their homes. Right. That's certainly true. And they can hide their trails. Right. You know, so. you know Obama who came into office advocating open government, suddenly that it was, was his government. Yeah. And he responded a little differently. He did. And he couldn't control the flow. He promised to reform a FOIA and transparency right. and everything. <laughs> and we all know that didn't happen. Much less yeah. classification of, yes. yeah. of government documents. In fact, there was just as much, if not more. I still have the letter that he, uh, that he, uh, that he sent out in January of when he came out and said, we're going to, you know, FOIA should be, there should be a presumption of openness, not closeness. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the opposite. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I want to, um, well, I think that it's interesting because there has been some criticism of the relationship that exists between big publishers and the government. We're going to get to that. Just because it was a very gentlemanly kind of controlled dialogue. There was disagreement, but there weren't the sort of renegade out of control. We have to put the, the lid on this pot because we can't control you know, Maybe. all these people. I'm I mean, just guessing. No, I think that that man, but I think, well, then you and I agree and we're both guessing here on stage, um, which is dangerous for everyone. <laughs> um, so I want to talk, you, you talked about the Obama administration making a distinction between sources and journalists. Do you think that journalists would benefit from a federal shield law? Or do you think that journalists should face the same kind of legal jeopardy as their sources? I mean, I think it, there have been many efforts over the years to get a federal shield law in place, and we certainly have supported those efforts. Um, whether that will ever actually come to fruition um, it remains to be seen. But, um, you know, I mean, we, there are, states have their own shield yeah. laws, and we benefit from them and use them all the time. And, um, and it is an important tenet to kind of our investigative and other journalism and how we treat our sources and our news gathering materials. So yes. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think it would hurt. I think the only, the only question I would see hypothetically is then you get into the weeds again about defining who a journalist who is, a journalist? is well. and who's doing journalism. And I mean, just as an individual, not speaking on behalf of the Post, I just am fundamentally, uh, you know, at. I have a little bit of discomfort of turning us into like a credentialed, card-carrying, mm -hmm. elite sort of organization. I mean, the early early journalism was founded on broadsides that, you know, the headline was important if true. Well, and so I think that, that that's, that's fundamental to our democracy that everybody can publish. I, I think David raises a good point because the shield law would inevitably raise the question, who's Who a gets included? Whose sources yeah, are, you know, are protected? Who gets protected? And I don't think any of us want a federal Body definition defining what that of means defining who's a journalist and especially not right now right well we'd, <laughs> we probably would have to ask facebook first if you're really trying to figure it out joke okay so i want to get to some um instagram specific yeah it didn't go over that well i want to go i want to go, go to some specific cases because um the post has obviously dealt with some very sensitive government national security information and made um, made a lot of choices around what to publish and how. And so we're going to go to first, um, and I'm, everyone can listen along because I'm going to ask you all to sort of weigh in on this. But in 2005, uh, the Washington Post journalist Dana Priest wrote about the CIA's use of covert black sites um, in several countries that were used to interrogate terrorist suspects. The reporting included ongoing debate within the CIA, in the, <coughs> the ongoing debate within the CIA about the ethical, legal, and practical issues of the use of secret prisons. Um, 
that story ended up very much being published, but there was a lot of discussion inside the Post about what to do. Um, and I would just want to read a little bit, and we're going to put up on a screen what um, Len Downey ended up saying about this. Um, yeah, I'm going to just skip to that, excuse me. Um, so the Post editors agreed to meet with the directors of national intelligence and the CIA, and then later the Bush and, Vi Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney to listen to their concerns. As executive editor, I decided to publish the secret prison story, but without the names of the Eastern European countries where they were located. Um, because, as the story stated, that this disclosure might disrupt counterterrorism efforts in those countries and elsewhere and could make them tar targets of terrorist retaliation. Um, so throughout her reporting, Dana kept her editors informed about the government's concerns about the publication of this material. Um, and I think inside the Post, what Lundowney has said is that the discussion centered on whether the damage seemed real um, and whether it outweighed the public's interest in learning about those specific details. Dave, I just want to ask your sort of take on, I know you weren't in the room when those decisions were being made, but just you remember the story um, and the kinds of, I mean, it would be nice, I think, to open up to people a little bit like the, what is the discussion when a story like that is under consideration? Yeah, first of all, I didn't edit that story and I wasn't, I, I was at the Post at the time, obviously, and I know Dana and, and I've worked with her closely and she's an excellent reporter. I mean, I think that that story and there, or that particular example, and there's a couple of others, Top Secret America and then the Snowden stuff more recently, those, all three of those involved matters of national security. They were all of this, you know, the last 10 to 15 years. They involved three different um, executive editors, Lynn Downey, Marcus Broccoli, and, and Marty uh, Barron. And I think in all three of those cases, this is a great example, is it shows the kind of prudence and, and um, care and um, uh, uh, consideration we give to these matters. I mean, the biggest problem I face in investigative reporting is, or not problem, the biggest challenge is I don't know what I don't know, and my reporters don't know what I don't know, and I think I stole that quote from Bob Woodward. But, it's, mm -hmm. but that's mm -hmm. true, and so we don't, we don't just take material, and in this particular case, as Lynn said in this piece that he wrote for the Post, they're conferring in real time with the directors of national intelligence and the CIA and the White House. Tell us, tell us about this material, let's vet this, Let's hear your concerns. Let's figure this out. And as, as he said, you know, he ultimately made a decision that he felt came down that, uh, that sort of maybe it was Solomon's baby, right? It was like on one hand, here's the public interest, but on, here's, here, on the other hand, we don't want to overstep our bounds. I mean, as a journalist, I don't want to get people killed. I don't want to, I don't want to send our, you know, I don't want to create problems. I want to spur discussion. But I think that, you know, the way I think about stories, and this just isn't just true for, for national security, although perhaps they get more attention, but I think about all of the reporting that we do the same way, whether it's a, whether it's a story about a police shooting or whether it's a feature. I mean, you want the stakeholders, the, the people that you're writing about, the subjects of those stories, it's the no surprises rule. They shouldn't pick up the Washington Post and look on the front page and suddenly realize that the Post has been working on an investigation for two years and they're in the middle of it. I mean, that's just, that's a journalistic failure. I mean, journalism should be, it should be a, it should be a, a cycle of communication, right? I mean, I know that we see a lot of the gotcha type stuff on TV where people jam mics into people's faces. That isn't conducive to getting at the, at the truth. 
and that's not conducive to getting people to actually cooperate with you and tell you why we shouldn't publish this entire document and, and the damage. And so you, you want to have a dialogue, and I think that example speaks to the kind of care that, that the newsroom exercises. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's our decision. The government didn't tell us to do that. Lynn made the decision. One, one traditional factor is this question of how do you establish what harm might result from publishing Theoretical. In unauthorized secret information. And the classic story is that uh, JFK persuaded the New York Times, Clifton Daniel, then the editor of the New York Times, in 1961, not to reveal that there were Cuban exiles training mm -hmm. to invade Cuba, the Bay of Pigs yeah. invasion. Yeah. And so the New York Times knew it, but didn't publish it. And then when that turned out to be a disaster, the Bay of Pigs invasion, I mean, total disaster with, right. with deaths by, uh, on the part of the invading force and all that, uh, President Kennedy said he wished they had published it. Right. I mean, it's so, hard to know. Now this, these are simpler times in some ways. You know, there was no internet. There were no, <laughs> Much simpler. <laughs> much, much more difficult. But, you know, it goes back to World War II. Um, the uh, Chicago Tribune found out that the uh, United States had cracked the Japanese code. Oh, mm -hmm. Enigma. Battle of Midway. And it published the story, and the Japanese never noticed. Uh, now, that that would not that happen. That might be worse. Actually. That would not happen. Nobody today. knows you. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's so much more complex now, and I. But I think it is a delicate. I mean, it's not a comfortable thing. There's no rule book for it. It's case by case. It's real time. It changes. You know. It, there's. A, there's. There's a. That's why it's very conducive sometimes. I mean, look, it's very competitive, so you can't always show your hand, but it's very conducive if you're doing an investigation to engage earlier than later because right. you just don't know with the subjects or the... And somebody gives you a trove of documents, you have to interrogate the material. We're driving toward a story. We're not just... We don't publish just to be provocative. I mean, our stories might be provocative, but we're doing it because we think that there's a public interest, or at least I do, and that's what drives me. Um, Dave, I want to just come back to you because you mentioned a, a case earlier where you were working on something about sh the shootings and you went back and called every single... Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Not? Okay. Uh, we, Malaya, we, do you want to talk about that? Did you I, make I, him do that? I, well, it was at their suggestion and it was a great suggestion. And, you know, we've, we've, we've documented police shootings now for four years, five years, four years. Uh, five? I'm losing track. Uh, but in 2015, uh, or in 2016, the second year of the project, we said, let's name every officer involved. And so, as you can imagine, if there's a thousand shootings a year, you can extrapolate the number of officers. And, and, and initially, I thought, well, we can just, we, because the entire project was built upon other media sources. Every day, two of our excellent researchers, Julie and Jennifer, go in and they pull out the names out of the media accounts and we put them into a database. And so we thought, well, we can actually add the, add the names of the officers from the media accounts. And Kalea and uh, James and Jay, all three of you said, look, we, 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 have a, we, we should, even though these names are already out there, we should call every officer. Because, and I said, why? And they said, it's the no surprises rule. You don't want, you, you know, being named in the hometown newspaper because you shot and killed somebody out in Abilene, Texas is one thing. Being on the Washington Post website for eternity. I mean, the internet lives forever, right? The Wayback Machine will capture it even if people take it down. And that was a smart call. And, and um, you know, we did. We, we called, we attempted to talk to every single officer. I want to say two of them spoke to us or something that year. 
Um, and so it was, you know, that's, but that's the kind of care that we take and, and we don't, you know, that wasn't a, um, there's no rule that said we had to do that, but it was the no surprises idea, right? That the guy doesn't pick up the paper and, right. hey, you're on the Washington Post website. Um, so to go back to the Assange case for a moment, we still don't really know what or how much damage might have been done by those revelations right, right. to this day. Because of course the CIA and other intelligence agencies were not about to say what was damaging because that in itself would reveal something. And again, that's what makes it so different from the Pentagon Papers case or some of these earlier things. It was a whole new domain. And I remember when, when the Assange, some of those cables were published that Chelsea Manning had, everybody said, well, it's good that the uh, foreign service officers serving in this country or that knew how bad the president of that country was because there were some very embarrassing right. cables leaked. But underneath, there could have been some damaging things. And Julian Assange did not exactly consult with anybody. Uh, later, Edward Snowden claimed that he reviewed all the documents before releasing them. I, I myself am skeptical. Well, the Post in, the, in the, the Snowden case, I mean, they also withheld aspects of that after they, it was the same idea. Uh, Marty has said before publicly in panels that they, you know, they conferred with national intelligence, they conferred with the White House. Bart has, Bart Gelman, the, one of the reporters, or the main reporter on that, you know, uh, they, they made a decision to not share every single PowerPoint that dealt with PRISM, which was the, you know, which was the right. intelligence gathering right. uh, apparatus. And, you know, some people criticized the Post for that, and other people said the Post went too far, and Marty has said publicly that if, you know, if, if the government had had their way, we wouldn't have written anything. And so... We have his comments right Yeah, here. please pull those up. up. They were, they were on, really... Uh, on, um, the, on the screen, and I just want to, I do want to highlight, I mean, he did say, um, he did say that if, he said, we did not, however, agree to every request of every sort made by the government. Had we done so, there would have been no stories whatsoever. Um, the intelligence agencies were opposed to publishing anything at all. And what we saw in the documents was something that went beyond specific sources and methods that the press has traditionally guarded on grounds of national security. So I think that there was a big fight about what... And that what next line is really important. The documents re reveal that the NSA was engaging in surveillance and data collection of breathtaking scope and inclusiveness. Intrusive. Intrusiveness, sorry. You know, it used to be asked a lot, at the time of the Pentagon Papers and other things, whom do we trust to say, uh, you know, can, you, can journalists be bold enough, cheeky enough to say that they know better than the government? And yeah. at least... For a long time, I would say the answer was yes. Mm -hmm. The journalists had a better perspective on what was now, now. I think some of these things, which were never anticipated, it's a different story. But we all grew up in this era where. But I mean, but in some ways, it's just a very basic thing to go. I mean, it's a much more complicated when you're dealing with a complicated surveillance program. But you have to go and get comment from everybody that you're, oh, sure. from most people that you're writing. So it's just a journalistic 101 kind of question. And then if they have a really interesting comment, then that can change the, what, you're, what you're eventually going to publish. It does a lot. Um, it happens all the time. I think that um, what's interesting about the, Snow, the parallel between the Snowden, Snowden and people compare Snowden and Assange all the time, but they're actually quite different for the yes. reasons that we've outlined, which is that Snowden explicitly handed over information to journalists because he wanted them to make the kinds of publica publication decisions that journalists typically that's make. That's a great point. Um, so I think that that's in some ways the opposite of what um, 
Assange did, and he stepped right into that to that um, point. Clay, I want to kind of, I don't want to finish on you, um, but I, I just want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about if this changes, if these kinds of cases change the way you think about legal issues that come to you at the Washington Post. You know, I mean, I think sort of what we've been talking about, sort of what we do ethically as responsible journalists, that distinction between what we do at the Washington Post and what Assange is alleged to have done is an ethical distinction and not a legal one. And it's not built into the Espionage Act. And also the Espionage Act does not turn, its applicability does not turn on whether someone is a journalist or not. And so I think getting back to your first question, that is why this indictment raises questions and about its applicability and whether it would be used, the Espionage Act would be used against sort of traditional news organizations like the Washington Post. In terms of what we do in legal day to day, I mean, certainly this is in the backdrop and something that we keep in mind. Um, for better or worse, we're not dealing with classified information every single day. And I think having a newsroom that is, has such a strong editorial structure and that we rely upon to make so many decisions in the course of reporting and things come to legal when the, you know, they've reached a certain point. And so day to day, I don't think that this impacts what we do because we continue to act as responsible journalists and try to make these decisions as best as we can. Um, that isn't to say that there may not be another WikiLeaks dump or something along those lines that will sort of sharpen these issues and force us to really reckon with them. Um, and obviously, as the Assange indictment plays out, if it does, um, that will obviously inform sort of the contours of the Espionage Act as applied to these types of circumstances. But certainly the facts alleged in the indictment do, they are very similar to typical investigative journalism activities. And so that is something we certainly need to think about. But I think we have such strong practices in place that um, I think at this point we feel pretty confident, confident in terms of what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading through that, at least the first indictment, which, as you said, Dave, there was a lot of that that was not problematic, but one of the um, issues that they highlighted was the conspiracy, to con the, the concealment of a conspiracy through using Signal, which is obviously a, a encrypted way to have right. a conversation, which is extraordinarily common among journalists. And so that, yeah, that's an effort to conceal wh who we're having conversations with so that our sources don't lose their jobs or We have to don't... protect our sources right. at the end and of the day, and we don't want to unintentionally or intentionally out them, otherwise we our credibility is all we have. I mean, you know, it goes, we're just, we're citizens who just happen to like writing stories and right. gathering information. And, right. And, um, uh, you know, and so. And again, what happens to Assange matters a lot yeah. in, in, the, in the near future. Of course, Ellsberg was never convicted, not because the government didn't Try. put on a strong case, but because of government misconduct. Right. And so the case never came to a conclusion. He was neither convicted nor acquitted. Uh, it will be interesting, would be interesting to speculate on whether the government will commit misconduct against Assange as well and spoil its own case. Uh, there's probably a temptation to do so. Well, I guess we have to stay tuned Let's on that. Um, I'm afraid that's all the time that we have. Thank you all for coming, and thanks to my excellent panel. Um, we will continue the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.